And so I think working on yourself and keeping your priorities straight, um, continually learning is extremely important with that. Also having the right state of mind as you're coming into your day to day, making sure that you're controlling your thoughts and actions so that they serve you and you can be, you know, the best version of yourself as you go through that, uh, just starts opening up doors. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Hey guys, I'm wrapping an episode with Devin Easterlin here. We covered a whole lot, but I think the nub of what we talked about was the art of being, the art of becoming, using yourself and the opportunity to reflect and get better personally as being the crux, the wellspring, and the source from goodness at a corporate level, and uh, just really leaning from the heart and being focused on becoming the best version of you for yourself, but also for your team and the people around you. A lot of great stuff here. I think you guys are going to like it. Check this one out. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I have Devin on with me. Devin, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Devin, tell us, what market are you in? So we are in the Seattle market, east, east side of Seattle. So home of Microsoft, Amazon, all of that over there. All right, yeah. give me some context on the business in terms of unit, team, asset classes. Sure, so uh, we have two major business lines. One is the property management, SJA property management, and we do mostly single family residential, some small multifamily, uh, medium-sized company up there in that business line, uh, managing about oh, 650 doors. Most of those are single family residential. And then we have a real estate brokerage, Sterling Johnston Real Estate. And we run about 85 brokers through that and they work throughout the state. So they do some commercial, mostly residential. Did you get started on the PM or on the brokerage side? Uh, started on the brokerage side. Um, we had a few brokers that came with us. We used to be affiliated with Remax. Uh, that franchise shut down. So when we opened our firm in 2009, we had a couple just jump on right away. And then, so we grew them both sort of at the same time. I have a business partner. So we kind of divided and conquered there. And uh, they kind of both grew over the course of these 10 years. That's interesting to have to build them both at the same time. Typically, there's a focus on one or the other. What made it make sense for you to have that vision for kind of a doing them both at the same time? Yeah, I'm not sure if I would recommend it unless you have a structure where you have. So we had, I have, I had two other partners since now it's just down to two partners and they had unique skill sets. So one of them had owned a Remax in the past and had connections with brokers. So he was doing, um, already doing that for Remax. So when we started our company, we used those connections to get a few brokers and he primarily stayed there for the next eight years, just working on the real estate side. And then we were working and I was primarily working on the property management side. So it was pretty siloed in terms of our responsibilities and allowed him to do his thing, me to do my thing. Um, and it worked well. It does divide your focus though. So there's a, there's a trade-off with that. Now, what are the advantages that you see of having strong entities on both sides of that equation, as opposed to just maybe being on one side and having a referral relationship on the other side? Right. Well, the real estate brokering is a very profitable business. Um, 
And we had made the decision early on that we wanted some flexibility. So we wanted to run those on separate books. One had separate branding so that one, one wouldn't take from the other. And we had the ability to break them off if we wanted to for various reasons for, for different strategies there. Um, I think we've since come around to bringing the brands together a little bit more and doing more of an end to end service. Um, but for a long time, it's been great. So we have all of the services that we provide to the brokers, marketing, all of those type of things. And then we had a separate staff that was doing the property management related things. Now with the disparate branding, how effective are you at making that handoff? When somebody says that they're ready to sell the unit in their portfolio on the PM side, what percentage of those do you capture? Right. So we track that a lot. And I think that was part of our initial strategy was to make them distinctly different. So appealing to different people. So back when we had started, no one wanted to sell their home with a property management company, right? Especially in our market. They wanted to sell with the regional players, Windermere. Dedicated, focused, specialist. Right. So we had, by us doing that, it was a easy handoff over to our dedicated real estate team, our real estate brokerage. You know, they do such and such amount of business. They're Sterling Johnston Real Estate. They work really well with us, property management. There's some benefits that customers get because of that. So clients get, there's a reduction in commission. There is, we can do more to get the property ready for listing where we might not be able to do that for someone that's going to an outside broker. But uh, we do track that. So that's something that we really make a, a strong push because so many properties, so many owners are selling in this market. So what's the capture rate ballpark? Right. So we want to get about 50% or more. So of the accounts that are eligible, meaning they weren't referred by one of our referral agents, mm-hmm. um, we want to get about 50%. So that's, you know, sometimes we could, some months we can do that, but it's difficult. A lot of people already have real estate agents that they have relationships with. So part of our focus now is to find those clients and get them used to us providing them with real estate information as an investor, as well as the property management side. So they're more primed to be receptive to, hey, let's take this thing that you're selling here and roll it into something else or allow us to sell it for you. What does that conversation look like? The treating them like an investor. Mm. Let me just infer uh, the demographic of who you're working with from your average number of units per owner. What is that number for you? Average number of units per owner? Oh, 1.5, one. I mean, little yeah, over one. About about average. So you're yeah. dealing with a lot of mom and pop. So when you say treating like them an investor, there's a reframe, there's a pull. So what is the conversation? Is it a pro forma? What are you showing them? Yeah. So this is something that I'm really excited about. So it's something that we haven't really put as much emphasis on in the past, but I think because everyone falls into, well, they're accidental landlords, right? Um, and I think even accidental landlords can learn to become investors, right? They can reframe what they're doing with that property. So we get a lot of people move into Austin for tech or whatever it is they plan on coming back or they're, they don't want to get rid of their house quite yet. And it might rent for $4,000 a month or something like that. We have really high rents in our area. So just showing them and what we're putting more focus on is showing them the value of keeping that real estate and turning them from, you know, that accidental landlord into an investor. And maybe you're not a traditional investor that's chasing cap rate or cash on cash return, you know, where, where uh, historically that's where investors are looking for cash flow and things like that. 
our type of client is already affluent enough to be able to hold something that maybe isn't a good cash flow, but they're getting principal pay down, they're getting a place for a tax haven, and they're also getting um, the appreciation, whether that be just through the markets. And it's a diversification tactic as well, right? Well, well so Devin, let's role play, role play that right now. The market is so hot. Now's the time for me to get out. I want right. to sell. I want the cash. I want the big check. Right. It's obvious, right? Yeah. Yeah, Jordan, I've had a, I, you know, I had that conversation with people three years ago, and that's the same thing they were telling me. But the ones that stick with us, you know, they've got an 18% return year over year. So you can always find a way to cash out, but where are you going to put the money? You know, what other places? So say you cash out and you have your 500,000 of equity, where are you going to put that? Are you going to put that into the markets? right? With the volatility and the things that you're dealing with there. Or if you already have a 401k that's maxed out, let's try to diversify where you have your money. So you have a slice in, in equities or bonds and you have a slice in real estate, even if it's not your traditional real estate you know, investment or you know, where, you, where you bought it thinking that I'm going to hold this for a long period of time. Devin, what if the housing market goes down? Right. Well, I would say that's a really good point. And you got to be careful about that because we had a lot of clients in 2008 and we all know what happened with people that weren't careful about how they finance their property. If market can always go down, but you're hoping within a 10-year cycle, it can go up and down. But at the end of that 10-year cycle, history has shown us that you're going to be ahead. And if you have a loan that's fixed where you can, you know what your monthly payments are, you really have reduced your risk. So that was one of the main issues um, with people in the Great Recession is those loans adjusted. They were variable. And so they couldn't refinance the property and they can no longer make the payments. So they're upside down. However, if you've got a fixed term on your mortgage, even if your, your rate goes down or even if the property goes down in value for a little while, you can withstand it. Um, so you're much more, you're a much more safe spot doing that. Okay. So if this is such a great idea, should I do a cash out refi and buy more properties? What do you think about that? You could do a cash out refi, you could do a rate and term, but absolutely, you know, and then once you get more comfortable investing and understanding all the benefits that you're getting, you can start to say, well, yeah, this was my family home and we moved, but the next one I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy with a little bit more of a desire to see some cash flow. I want to run some numbers. I want to get something with a good cap rate. Um, I have a plan for it. Maybe not so much the accidental, but more intentional real estate investor. Now, thank you for role-playing there. Yeah. My question to you is how much, what, what would we call this, neural plasticity, identity plasticity, is there from shifting from being an accidental to an investor? Some people are bullish. Other people are like, ah, they're not going to make the jump. It's too hard. It's, it's, it's grandma's property. They're emotionally attached to it. How much leeway do you think there is to pull people along in this journey? Right. And that's what I find exciting because you already, if you're a property manager, you already have a relationship. There's already a certain level of trust. They've given you their $800,000 asset and said, hey, don't mess it up. Right. So they're, they're listening to what you say. So the things that you provide them, whether it be phone calls, videos, information, they're going to read it because it's coming from something, coming from someone they trust and that they're already doing business with. And I think if you approach it in an authentic way where you say, Hey, you start to tell them and show them what their property has done, show them that you now are becoming a real estate investor. And this is the returns that you've gotten. This is the benefits that you're receiving. And 
And oh, by the way, you can parlay that into other real estate investments as well. Um, who's in a better position than the person they're already dealing with that's already, that has all that information readily available to share with them? And that's something that we want to focus on more because it's not, we live this every day. So we can easily grab those numbers, show them what their returns have been, show them other investments that they might be interested in. And once it gets their views to property management as well, understanding that they can actually be pretty passive. It doesn't have to be an active investment. It can be pretty passive. Then it starts to become much more appealing. So if we're taking this seat in this frame, this lens of having empathy of being in this investor's seat, promoting this kind of thinking, help me pair this and reconcile this with a lot of the industry focus right now on fee maxing, revenue optimization. I'm a part of that, right? I'm talking about that. I'm facilitating it. I believe in having a robust business that gives you margin, provide great service. At the same time, there can be some some conflict and tension between that agenda and the pro forma results, you know, sometimes fee maxing is like, can pull directly out of the results that the investor gets. How do you reconcile that tension? Yeah, I think that's really important. And the we've swung different ways with that in the course of our business. I think we are now really focusing on everything we provide should have value, true value to the owner. It should be simple. They should be able to understand it and it should be investor friendly as well, right? So we don't want to put other things on there um, that are going to start to chip away at returns without providing value. But there's a there's blue sky in all the value that you can provide. If we're looking at the lifetime value of a client, well, you might have your number based on them being a property management client. But what if you add in selling that investment, helping them buy another investment, having those things put into that overall dollar value of what the lifetime value of a, cl of a client can be, it gets pretty exciting pretty quickly and you're providing value, right? So I always believe that you have to be, you have to be able to justify any costs that you're, that you are um, giving to your clients and you have to providing, you know, more value than it costs. Let's talk about the bottom line results of this, which is profit. Mm -hmm. When you think about the operator who's grinding and they're growing and things are pretty good, but they're making no money. They've been making no money. They're waiting for the big exit in the sky, career end, their staff for growth, whatever the story is. How do you think about the relationship between profit and growth? I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. You're, I have found that when you're really focused on growth, profit tends to suffer. Uh, your labor costs go up a little, and marketing spend goes up a little. Um, in terms of, I think you do, what one thing that I've learned over all of this is, you have to provide, I can't remember who told me, but it might've been at one of these conferences, you have to thrill your client first. You have to go back to that. They have to love what you're providing. Focus on making them love the service that you're providing and then streamline it. Start to find ways to make it more effective, more profitable. If you start from that, with that's your ultimate, you know, your why or what your team is striving for, the profits come. And then you can come in and start to really put a fine, you know, get your pencil out and find ways to shave some costs, to add some alternative uh, revenue sources onto that. But if you're starting from thrilling your client, 
a lot of great opportunities and a lot of growth comes from that. What would you say to somebody that's on the brokerage side? They're successful, they're making money, they're enjoying the lifestyle, the, the flash, the pop, the pizzazz, market timing. I mean, hey, great time to be in that side of the biz. How If, if someone pressed you and said, why are you slumming around on the property management business? And you were to impress upon them the upside, what would you communicate? Yeah, well, property management, of course, is a recurring uh, recurring revenue, right? And it is not 100% res- recession proof, but it does really well. When people, when real estate goes down, uh, it seems as though, and we've had both. So in looking at this over the course of a decade, when we went through the Great Recession, our property management company was doing just fine, right? More people were renting, uh, less people were selling. Resilience. Yeah, resilience, steady income, also a lot of ways to work on your profit, create different values for your owners. Um, real estate buying and selling as an individual broker, um, you're, you're constantly looking for that next deal, right? And they are, while requiring the same license, completely different disciplines, right? So I wouldn't go into it lightly if I was a real estate broker just out there selling properties, I would say this is going to be a career change. And I would come into it looking at it like that, not that they're, because they are so different. Do you view buy and flip versus buy and hold in a cash flowing asset? Is that a fair metaphor to kind of think about the parallels here? Yeah. I mean, I think buy and flip and buy and hold are two totally different businesses. Different temperaments. Yeah. Different temper, different risk tolerance, all of that. That's a, that's a good metaphor. I would, I would say, yeah. I mean, the, um, Buy and hold is much more like the property management side. Buy and flip is much more like the, the broker side. So what is the what is the disposition difference that you see? In theory, it's strategy. Strategy is why I got into brokerage versus the strategy that would guide getting into PM. The reality is it's circumstantial. I fell into one, I fell into the other. But if you think about hard skills, temperament that allows somebody to thrive in the one environment versus the other, given that you're on both sides and making money on both sides, what do you see as the gap there? Yeah, I think on the, if you're an individual broker, um, in order to be successful, you need to be an expert at marketing, marketing of yourself and really going after lead generation. That's a huge part of what you're doing. And that's what you see the most successful brokers doing is they're really good at marketing themselves, marketing their team. And their real estate is almost uh, a byproduct. It's it's secondary, right? Um, On the property management side, that's much more business oriented. You are creating a business with systems and process, and that's really what's driving uh, your success there. So the more sound your systems are, the more repeatable they are, the better you're going to do over the long run. So different personality types, for sure. That's a, that's a crazy dichotomy to me. I, I like almost make up some judgments as you say that. Yeah. I feel like you're saying on the one hand, like, you know, the business is like being an Instagram influencer. On the other hand, it's like, it's a real business with systems and processes. I know that you've invested in systems and processes on the PM side. Do you find that there really is just dramatically less need for SOPs and order on the brokerage side? I mean, to, to get a transaction done, there still is is ops-related work to, to, to be done. What does the investment on systems and processes look on that side of the business versus PM? Absolutely. It's still critical. But if we're looking at what's the most determinant of your success, mm-hmm. that's where I'm going to. So the big real estate teams, the successful, 
successful real estate teams have process. They have, you know, transaction coordinators with checklists and all of those type of things. But you can have all the processes in the world. If you're not getting that next deal in real estate, you're going to go out of business. So the average real estate agent is what, two years and they're out of business or out of the industry, right? So if you're not charismatic, lead generating type of person, it's going to be very hard to be successful over the long run. Whereas in property management, you it's going to be very successful over the long run if you don't have repeatable systems that allow you to provide a consistent product. And that's where your focus can go. Yeah. Devin, what do you think the lowest point for you has been in your career and journey on in property management and brokerage? Where do you start, right? Uh, what no. sticks out when it's a time that you just really got slapped by the, by the universe in business? In business, you know, I think it's when you try to, for me, it's been when you try to delegate things that really are too important to delegate. And we found that when we something, I'm referring to something like culture, right? When you say, I'm too busy to really be focusing on my culture. And you have other people that you think are, um, are doing what you would do and fostering the type of environment that you want to create. You take your eye off that ball and you come in, you find out that your, your workplace is more toxic than you thought. That's where I've had the biggest challenges. And so that's where I've thought, you know, as one of the leaders, that's one of my high priorities is to focus on that and learn to enjoy it and learn to incorporate that in what I do uh, with my company. So when I've, when I've taken my eye off of that, those have probably been my worst times. So what are we talking about? Like a mid, mid management hire, uh, a GM kind of hire that, that flavor, right? Where you say, Hey, this person is good at operational things. They can probably preserve the culture that I want. I'm going to go focus on these other areas for our growth or whatever it might be. Um, and it's too important to leave to that. Uh, at least from our experience. So stepping back in and saying, I always have a role in creating the culture that I want uh, in this company, hiring people that adhere to that and having that be at the forefront of something that I put my focus on, um, that has vastly decreased our attrition with staff and those type of things. So attrition with staff is a really challenging thing in property management, as you know, just because the workflow never stops. A lot of knowledge walks out the door. A lot of knowledge walks out the door. Clients don't like it. Tenants it, don't like it. it. Churn, direct correlation to churn. Yeah, okay. absolutely. It's, it's excruciating. So when you think about the relationship that you want to have with your team members and that kind of specific contribution unique to you, because you're the owner, you're the face, you're the man, what does that look like day to day? What is that highest and best relational contribution that you want to have specifically? What are you doing there? Right. Well, I try to, you know, you want to make it organic, but you also at the same time have to make it systematic, right? So you can't just jump in every now and again and talk about your core values and think that's going to change people's perception, right? Or their behaviors. So what I like to do is have key points within the month, within the week, where I can um, what, say, for an, just as an example, we have team meetings every week. And ev before every one of those team meetings, we're reading the core values. And with that, we're looking for times within the week where someone embodied those. And we can talk about it. And I can talk about it. I'm leading that meeting. So I can reference it. I can talk about how important it is, uh, give kudos where it's necessary. So every week, they're hearing that the same mantra of what we stand for. And I'm also looking for opportunities to put my money where my mouth is, right? Opportunities, if we say that we are focused on our people first 
And there's an opportunity where I can showcase that and I can actually say, yep, this is going to cost us some money, but it's going to protect the team. I will point that out. I will bring that up and I will be happy to do it, right? I'll be happy to spend that extra money and whatever it might be to help reinforce that culture. So I'm always looking for opportunities and examples that align back to those core values and things that we're trying to embody. Now, Devin, what would you say to somebody that says core values? That sounds like a fundamental waste of time. I pay them money. They should do their jobs. How do you react to that sentiment? Sure. Well, I think if anything, uh, today's at work environment has shown us that it's, I mean, if you're a dollars and cents person, you can run the numbers on what attrition costs you, right? You can see how much it is to replace a good employee. And there's a, you know, an A player is not just, they may cost you a little bit more, but what you get from them in terms of the value they bring to your organization is exponential, right? And we all know that. So if you want to look at it from a dollars and cents perspective, I think you can make a really good argument that creating an environment that people want to work at and they feel like they're a part of it is going to be the most profitable type of company you could run. When I think about the A player conversation, what comes to mind for me is not just the work that they're getting done. Of course, you can delegate more. They're more independent, et cetera. I think about what it does for me. There's what they do on their own, which they put, what they push down, but the headspace that it puts me in to not have to babysit and to feel empowered and to dream and explore and show up at my best without this low grade anxiety of having to babysit and check in. Did they do it? Did they do it? Did they do it? That's when I know I have an A player. I don't know that I have an A player from day one. I figure out maybe 60 to 90 days in when I've done the check-ins and the follow-ups and there was nothing to find. Mm -hmm. They did it. They're on top of it. And once I'm like kind of, you read that sigh of relief and you know, I officially have that headspace back to put on my highest and best use. That's what it, that's the, the impact for me that, that makes me believe in the 10x. How do you think about knowing, finding, and confirming that you have an A player? Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, just just from your own personal productivity, just knowing that you have people like that working with you. I one one thing that I is kind of a a tell for me is when I really enjoy collaborating with someone right? When I come in and I'm like, I really want to talk to this person because they're going to have good information. I enjoy the conversation. I know that the action steps that we come up with together, they're actually going to do. This isn't going to do, they're not just going to give me lip service. They're going to engage with me and it's going, I'm always looking, um, for people that are just better at certain aspects of the business than I am. That's what I really enjoy collaborating with because I want that. I don't want my way to be the way that it is. I want it to be other points of view that I can listen to and learn from. And we come up with something even better than the sum of its parts, right? So when you bring people in that are A players, they have their own opinions, they have their own ways of doing things. And you just get to incorporate that into your company. It just makes you so much stronger. Could not agree more. I actually have somebody in the room where I have that same dynamic. It's incredibly life-giving to me. As you look forward and you think about what you're trying to build, how do you manage your own mental headspace, Devin? Yeah, I'm, you know, I, I think it's really important that if you're trying to 
ascend to the next level in whatever it is that you're doing, you have to work on yourself first uh, in order to do that. You have to become that person that can, you know, manage the company of that size or that can create that much prosperity for yourself. And so I think working on yourself and keeping your priorities straight, um, continually learning is extremely important with that. Also having the right state of mind as you're coming into your day to day, making sure that you're controlling your thoughts and actions so that they serve you and you can be, you know, the best version of yourself as you go through that, uh, just starts opening up doors. Right. I could well said, yes, absolutely. The inner game, the art of becoming. Yeah. I want to know, Devin, who do you listen to? Who has been an influence on you? What books have you read that's had staying power? Not a quick pop, but what stuff has really stuck with you over time? Yeah. Um, so I love reading books, right? It's, it's a I, fellow book junkie. I love oh it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I love it. And I, and I crush Audible and, you know, I just incorporate that into my life. So there's several books that have been, um, you know, it really depends on what you're trying to focus on. Um, sometimes I'll, t- I'll read books that are outside of my genre, outside of my industry, and you'll pull things from those. Uh, I read books on mindset, which I think is is great. Um, let's see, one that I read, Atomic Habits is one I just James finished. James Clear. Yeah, which is a great book. And it's not just about habits. See, that's also about um, becoming the person who, right? Not so much having a habit or whether I can stick to it is I'm the type of person that does this. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that goes back to our earlier conversation of if you're at a plateau, well, who do you need to become in order to, in order for you to grow to that? Mm. Right. So you becoming that person first. So that's uh, atomic habits is a great one for that. Um, I read some getting things done. Uh, I think it's a great book as well. That's just on time management productivity. So that's one that's really stuck with me. I read that probably about um, eight, nine years ago. So, so what does that mean? What are the implications of that book? That book is, is interesting. It's, it's almost uh, dated at this, at this point, even though the author is still around David, David, I'm, I'm, is it I'm, David Allen, David Allen. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Getting things done. David yeah. Allen. Are you an inbox zero practitioner? Uh, yes, basically, um, this week, notwithstanding, but I think the main, I mean, there's a couple core concepts from every book that I read that stick out to me. The main one, I think from that book is just getting things out of your head and into some sort of way of collecting it. Right. So it's that idea of, oh, I'll remember that, or uh, I'll think I'm not going to, I don't need to put that somewhere. And so your subconscious is always running behind you on all the things you need to do. Mm -hmm. And you clear up all of that ability to think on things that are actually really important rather than the dates Mm -hmm. and actions that you need to take by putting it somewhere. So now your subconscious is working on that sticky problem that you're dealing with. I'd shout out Executive Toughness. That was a book you actually introduced me to. I've really enjoyed that read. One of the beautiful parts about reading is it gives you context. And I think of like a, um, I don't know, hooks to hang things on. Mm -hmm. I've heard somebody say before, the handle on the luggage. You can hold the luggage. You can pick it up, scoop it up, put it on your shoulder, you carry around. But that little handle on it is so much easier. Mm -hmm. And when you have language to wrap around a concept and a common experience – that and, and being able to share that with other people, yeah. 
that's where there's just a much faster rapidity of communication. Absolutely. And when you're taking in information and you've read a good book that it fits into that concept, right? So now you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I see how this applies to whatever concept the book was trying to talk about. You start to see those everywhere, right? Especially the ones that you really enjoy and you come back to. I find a lot of um, when you talk about language, so my business partner and I both like reading. And so we'll we'll throw books off each other and then be able to reference mm -hmm. those concepts mm -hmm. when we deal with those situations because yes. we're speaking the same language. So it just shortcuts so much stuff. We're immediately on the same page with something. I'm constantly sending books, ideas, articles yeah. to my staff and team. And I don't expect them to read all of it 100%, 100% of the time in depth, but the idea, the nub of it needs to be relatable. I want them to like get what I'm getting at mm -hmm. and push back and see if, you know, there's some interplay. It's not all ideas have worth, but you can filter and grade and sift and see what's useful and what's not. Yeah. I'd like to hear from you, your reflections on the regulatory environment that you are in. If somebody was thinking about starting a property management company in your market, they want, they're in you, they live where you're at. They want to start a PM company and they're willing to move to wherever. Is it worth it to start a PM company in a more highly regulated market? Or would you potentially consider sending them to start something down in, in the South where it's more of a, a, a Wild West situation? It's an, interesting, it's an interesting question because as an investor, you want to be in a more landlord-friendly environment. Oftentimes, it just protects your risk a little bit better. As a property manager, yes, it's more complex, but it's also job security. Because it's more complex, it's harder for the individual landlord to manage their properties. So the more adept you are at keeping up with those regulations and staying abreast of all the new things that are being rolled out, especially city of Seattle, is a challenging thing. It's job security. So to, to ask is, should someone move into a market like that? I think it would be difficult if you're operating in multiple markets. So say you're, I'm going to open a Seattle branch, but I also have a branch in Milwaukee. Well, there are two different sets of regulations. It's changing all mm -hmm. the time. It's a mm -hmm. fluid situation. It's hard for you to overlay your processes with that market. So if it's, if it would be, that would be a cautionary. But if you were just coming into a market that has it, it's pro-tenant, and um, I think you can thrive, it does present a challenge when you're trying to create, we're a system-oriented company, so when you're trying to create systems and processes and checklists, but you're always having to update them to accommodate mm -hmm. these new notice requirements and all the things that are coming down in our state, it does present a challenge and you have to have enough bandwidth within your organization to stay on top of that. So maybe it's something you self-elect for. If you're a fly by the seat of your pants, kind of charismatic sort of person, you know, A, you should be asking, is property management great for you? Do you understand trust accounting? Period. Right. But maybe in that, but somebody with that temperament, who's not going to be as detail-oriented, might, you know, may pay a bit of a penalty in this market. What I think is is interesting about what you're articulating there, the regulatory environment, what you're having to put up with, surely there, there's got to be some pain though. I mean, tell me about some, some, some screw ups, some situations where there have been some consequences as a result of some of this. I don't, know if you, I don't want to be biased here and say overreach, but let's say a lot of regulatory overhead that you have to work with. Have you had any examples where you feel like you have kind of paid the consequence of not being, uh, of dealing with this kind of constantly changing landscape? Yeah. I mean, I think 
overall our mark. So there's a, you know, a couple of ways. There's a couple of ways I could talk about that. You know, for in internally, we'll make mistakes because of the ever changing rules that aren't even, we'll have rules that don't have any um, reasonable explanation of how to apply them quite yet. This is ambiguous. Right. It's ambiguous. It's not been litigated. You know, you don't know. There's no statute on point or it's ambiguous. Um, so those situations, those happen. I think if you're talking about from a company perspective, when stuff like that happens, and this is this is a perfect example of something we were talking about earlier about culture. If you have a culture of, hey, we make it right. So at our company, it's we call it, we fix it. So when we make a mistake and it costs the owner money, we don't squabble over price. We come in and we fix it, right? Mm. And so everybody in that organization knows that they have the trust to make a mistake, right? Because we're not going to get angry at them. We're going to learn from it. We're going to make whoever suffered whole, you know, if it's the owner or if it's a tenant, if it's our fault, we're going to come in and we're going to fix it. What that does, and this is a little off topic, but I think it's important is now you have trust with your employees. They're, it's okay for them to make a mistake. It's okay for them to bring it up and say, hey, this is what happened. They understand that they're in a safe place and then we can learn from that, right? If it's all been hidden and then what you're going to get is a bunch of little smoldering fires, that person's going to leave. You're going to come into a lot of issues that you never knew existed. However, if you've established that trust with your employees that, hey, it's part of our motto. We're going to fix these problems and we're going to learn from them. They feel much more comfortable sharing those things. And we get a, and we get to head them off at the pass and learn from each one. So that's been great. You know, something I don't talk a lot about, but is actually meaning to, meaningful to me, particularly on the engineering side of my business, is psychological safety. And you were just alluding to it. I came aware of and hypersensitive of this concept because with software engineering, you're building things. And the question is, how long is it going to take? Big feature, adding something to the roadmap. You want to estimate. And oftentimes the estimations are wrong. And so the organizational impulse can be to press and say, hey, you committed. You said this was the deadline. You better get it done. And the result is that sometimes the estimations start to be worse because people don't feel permission to be honest about mm -hmm. what is, which then creates this vicious cycle of missing more of the deadlines and being more upset because they got it wrong. Mm -hmm. Psychological safety says, I want an accurate estimation, but I don't want that more than I want you to be honest about just telling me what the reality is. I don't want to wear rose-colored glasses. And if that means that I can't have the level of estimation accuracy that I would prefer. I'm okay with that. It's okay if the date shift psychological safety is number one. Mm -hmm. Now that's specific to this engineering and, and kind of culture of estimation and deadlines, et cetera. What are some examples where you see psychological safety resulting in a higher quality of, of employee output? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when people feel comfortable that if they make a call, and that call is incorrect, they are not going to be admonished and not going to be penalized. If it's that. a call in good faith. Right. It's a call in good faith. They thought about it. So what that allows them to do is to make some calls, right? Is to be able to, so when you're really systems oriented and checklist oriented, like we are, I mean, we have a checklist, electronic checklist for everything. It becomes harder to think outside of those checklists outside of those systems. You're so used to the next, next tax coming up in your inbox. 
And, but we still are in a service business when we're dealing with people. So not every situation is the same. It's unique. And you need people to be able to use common sense and to be able to think on their feet in various situations. If they feel like they can make the call on things and the company's got their back, they feel safe, like you mentioned, they're going to do that. And most of the time they're going to be right. And mm -hmm. it allows for a lot more efficiencies rather than having to shut down the assembly line for everything that doesn't fit within the exact checklist that we've created. So that's one example, I think, where you can have people feeling like use your experience, make the right call. We got you if you make a mistake and then they can, it works a lot better than having to get everything run up the flagpole every single time. There's a kind of hedge that you can see made when people don't feel safe. And the hedge looks something like, I know it needs to be done, but I'm not a hundred percent sure that if I put go out on a limb, that it's going to be okay. Therefore I'm going to do something that I know is suboptimal and dysfunctional, but that I will have uh, I won't have any risk exposure. Mm -hmm. I did my job. Something bad happened. I, but it wasn't my fault. I did my job. Mm -hmm. That's That kind of hedging is typically indicative of people not feeling like they have the leeway to kind of put themselves out there. Right. All of this stuff adds up to a company culture, which is hard to wrap your hands around. What exactly is it? How do you create it? At the end of the day, it's just a reflection of what is and what's felt in your organization. Mm -hmm. I've heard it said that leadership is attention. It is the things that you choose to elevate of being worthy of time and attention and focus. At the current stage of where you're at in the business, what are the top organizational priorities? Where are you focusing your very precious mental bandwidth? Yeah, I think, like you say, I want to put attention. I think I think that's really well said. It's and and your organization and your people notice that. What what is the leadership putting their attention on? So culture is a big one. That's one where I want to just I enjoy it. Uh, I like a safe place for people to work. I like us achieving, and so I want to continue to put my time in that. And I think it's worthwhile in terms of business. Um, I want to get more into, like we mentioned earlier, um, educating our clients on how to become investors, how to look at how to evaluate property, how to turn one property into two. Um, we do have such a knowledge of that because of the real estate side and the amount of transactions that we're doing over there. It just seems like a natural progression to make that more uh, some, some uh, economies of scale there and bringing that together. So I wanna really start to educate our clients on that, the benefits of real estate letting them know that it doesn't have to be complex, that we can, we can provide them, you know, we can take a lot of the risk away from it. Um, and so they can start to really expand that side of their investing so they can diversify, like I mentioned earlier. Mm. And so I think there's a lot, you can start providing a lot more value when you do that. Devin, what's been the biggest shift in your identity as a business owner from when you started to today? Well, you know, when you start, like so many of us do, when you're bootstrapping, right, you're doing everything, right? And I think the biggest shift over time and the one that has helped me the most is continuing to focus on where you have the biggest impact. Um, and then the author is escaping right now, but it's, it's not so much what you can do, but how can, how can you be useful? Where are you the most useful in your organization? And it's not doing... Uh, the small tasks that you maybe once did, even though you're really good at them, 
right? Mm-hmm. Even though you can do them in your sleep, it's doing the things that only you can do and only you can do well. And so every time you hit that next plateau, every time you hit that next growth goal, you have to be reevaluating where your time is being spent. And am I putting my time on the most useful things for this business? And that changes on, depending on how big your company is or where you are in that business cycle. So if you can sum it up for me, if you think about what would need to be true at the end of your career in order for you to feel like, it was time well spent, an investment that was worthy and commensurate of the God-given abilities and giftings that you have. What will need for you to be true at the end for you to reflect back and be satisfied? Sure. Um, for me, I don't like to, I wouldn't want to, and even in the past, I don't like to look back and say, I left things on the table. I left things undone that I knew I could have done or that we could have done as an organization together, but we didn't. And not, you know, I really want us as an organization to be in action, not just in motion, right? Not just thinking about all the things we can doing, but taking those actions that have consequences and learning from those. And I don't necessarily, it's not a dollar amount. It's not a wealth amount for me. It's more, were you in the game? Were you living to your company's full potential? And as you hit that next plateau, you retooled you became the company became and you became the person that goes to that next that next level it's a journey it's not a there's no destination and i think when you first start out as an entrepreneur you think there is a destination and then you realize no actually this is continual mm. right mm. um but continuing to take those chances continuing to grow as a company as a person that's beautiful man yeah. that is the dojo right? the work the endless never ceasing it's what can allow you to be content being a perpetual white belt, I view and I perceive ego as an internal commentary on how much is how much upside is left. If you're at the top of the mountain, mm-hmm. you might as well celebrate. You know, you start thinking you're hot shit. But if you perpetually view yourself at 10% of your capabilities and there's 90% left, there's always a humility that pervades what you do. Mm-hmm. And I think there's joy in that. There's joy in the progression. Just, you know, they, that just kind of spurred like just manageable challenges, right? If you're always putting, you're moving the goalposts out. So they're just manageable challenges. That's where the happiness. And, and I don't necessarily think of it as happiness is more as fulfillment. Mm-hmm. So if you're asking me, how do you be fulfilled or how do I personally be fulfilled? It's in the journey. It's in the progression, right? Um, and that's just continuing to just, throw out just manageable challenges for you and for your company, right? So you can rise to that. And every if you're progressing, pretty soon you look down, you're like, oh, wow, we've done some great things. Mm. Let's leave it there, man. Yeah. I appreciate you coming on. It's fun being in the industry with people like you that are committed to bringing the best of yourself to it, man. Thank you. appreciate you having me, man. This is fun. Until next time. Yeah. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.